Hello and welcome to season 8 of Immigrantly. I am your host Sadia Khan. Fall is almost here and so is our latest season with new stories, new narratives. I am so excited. First of all, I would like to thank everyone who's been listening to our podcast, who's been with us since season 1 or who joined us somewhere along the way. Thank you for your support. Thank you for subscribing, for listening. Your support is what keeps us going. New season is going to be incredible. I promise you that. And today we are kicking off new season with interview with Maho Malfino. Now Maho is taking back the narrative that has been assigned to women for centuries. Her work centers around dismantling tendencies that hold women back from stepping into their power. Interesting, right? According to her, these are the good girl myths. Myths that socially condition women into acting good instead of achieving their most powerful selves. Now she has released a book that helps women undo these tendencies titled Break the Good Girl Myth. No surprises there, right? Her podcast Heroin continues this work by engaging in conversations with female visionaries. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started. There is a time for sacrifice and if you are choosing sacrifice or if you are deciding I want to do this sacrifice in my relational role or duty as mother, daughter, sister-in-law, that is beautiful. More power to you. The question is, are you choosing it mm. on a conscious level or are you defaulting it into it because you want to avoid backlash, please perform because it's what you've always known, it's because what you've inherited from the systems you grew up in. So I think this question of choice versus default, right? This is very big for all the good girl myths. Maho, I have started reading your book and full disclosure, I haven't finished reading it, but I have a fairly good idea of what you talk about in your book because I have watched your videos and listened to your podcast. So before we begin, before we get down to the nitty-gritty, I want to start with basics. I'm curious to know who is the intended audience for this book? That's a great question. So this book is for any woman who feels like she grew up checking the boxes, fulfilling social expectations, maybe expectations of her family, her parents, any cultures or communities she grew up in, her religion, her school, and gets to a moment where maybe she's feeling a little unfulfilled mm. and dried up or having a questioning of like what am i really here to do and what i argue in the book is in order for us to understand our purpose and what we're here to do we actually have to look at all those things the the ways that we have fallen for the trap so to speak of mm. um the patriarchy of 
trying to be this good girl to please other people. And we have to look at those layers before we can free up the energy. So that's why I spent such a bulk of the book going through every single good girl myth in depth, because I think we really have to understand them to peel them back. So let's talk about those myths before we delve into details of what the book really entails. In your book, you state that there are five good girl myths, and these are rules, perfection, logic, harmony, and sacrifice. For our listeners who haven't read the book, can you quickly break down each of the myths? Sure. So the myth of rules sounds like if I follow the rules, life will be easier, I will get ahead. So this, what this looks like is the uh, tendency to follow external authority instead of mm. trusting our own desires, needs, and opinions. Mm. So for every myth, I break down what it sounds like, what it looks like, the strategy for approval, but also the powers we need to reclaim when we break that myth. So for the myth of rules, the powers that we need to reclaim are our purpose and self-authority. So that's for the myth of rules. And I start off the book with this myth because in order to break the other good girl myths, we need to unpack this one because mm. it is so um, it's so deep and it has to do – because all the good girl myths are types of rules. We have to know how to interact and be critical, question, bend, even leverage rules in order to unpack the rest of the good girl archetype. I grew up in Pakistan, culturally mm -hmm. a very different place. And what I have noticed about many cultures, especially um, Asian cultures, Eastern cultures, South Asian cultures, there is a cultural expectation, not just from girls, but from boys as well, to mm -hmm. uphold certain rules. There's a broader notion of good children. Yes. Right? And these expectations have evolved with generations, but... To be honest, the sentiment remains. So for me, as someone who grew up in Pakistan, there is a lot in this book that I try to connect with, but I can't because mm -hmm. of the fact that I feel many women in Pakistan are most of the time in survival mode, right? I feel, yeah. And that's why the question that I asked you in the beginning, who is the intended audience, in my mind, when I read this book... I think of a privileged white cis woman. I don't mm -hmm. see as much intersectionality or different cultural nuances uh, mm -hmm. within the book. Was that intended? And I know you have mentioned this in your book uh, in some places where you talk about how this is meant for women who have basic rights taken care of, right? So they are yes. not fighting for um, right to marriage. They are not fighting for right to exactly. education. Mm -hmm. So you talk about that. But that's why I want to understand, was that intended? Was it because you drew on your own experiences and your experiences are pretty much um, that of a woman who grew up in the Western society? Or do you think I'm missing something? No, I would agree with that. I think the book is really... First of all, yes, totally admitting my privilege. So glad you're bringing that up because that is 100% true. Um, you know, I'm I am an immigrant. I'm Latina, but I'm still, you know, I'm still white and I grew up my father though he came from poverty did have sort of a rags to riches story and we came into wealth later in my teens. So for sure, this is born out of my experience and born out of the experience of my clients and mm -hmm. the female leaders I speak to on the podcast. And so um, 
this really is a book about looking at internalized patriarchy for a woman who does have her basic needs taken care of. Because you're right, so many women around the world don't have their needs taken care of and don't have basic rights. And, you know, that that isn't my my area. I'm not, you know, uh, an academic or a social justice activist. I'm really mm. coming at this from my perspective as a coach and a designer mm. and in working with the women that I work with. So, I, you know, it's funny with writing a book because I've also gotten some com- – I've been speaking to some men who say, what about men? And, yeah. you know, and <laughs> speaking to some uh, now women who are saying, what about less privileged women? And I think it's like – when you write a book, it's like a PhD, you, you do your slice of the world as best as you can yeah. and really focus on that. And And I really wish that there would be, and I hope to see more men speak about internalized patriarchy, uh, more Western men or whoever to speak about internalized patriarchy and, and you know, write, break the good boy myth. That would be awesome. <laughs> that's not, you know, that's not my area. And um and I think there are so many incredible activists and social justice um, experts and women who are talking about women in other parts of the world and in the U.S. who are struggling with survival. And that's that's beautiful. And I, and I want to support that work as well. So I think we each have our little purpose and slice of the world. I wanted to put things in perspective for listeners as well, what this book really entails and the kind of work that you've done, which um, focuses on niche audience in a way, but obviously it can be replicated and it can be customized to other cultures and other societies. Let's uh, talk about other myths, myth of perfection, logic, harmony, and sacrifice. So the myth of perfection is this sounds like, you know, feeling this pressure to perform at a high level in many areas of life. Mm -hmm. And it's a tendency to demand perfection in ourselves, in others, instead of sort of embracing the mistakes, the messiness of life, the reality of how things are. So this can look like a lot of self-criticism and a lot of achievement, desire to achieve, and I definitely, this is my dominant primary good girl myth. Mm. In uh, in chapter three, I have an assessment where you can find out what your good girl myth is. And this is the one that uh, is the one that I work on every day. <laughs> and the powers to reclaim are authenticity and vulnerability, like the ability to uh, say like, yeah, you know, I got this one wrong or I'm sorry, <laughs> or this is really, or to, to share what's really on your heart and mind, even it makes, if it makes you look stupid or taking a mm. risk with your voice. Um, this is all having to do with the myth of perfection. It's interesting you say that because I am not a perfectionist at all. I'm a very disorganized, intuitive person. Um, I've I follow logic in some ways, but in other ways, I am just completely intuitive. But people around me, I've seen perfectionists. Um, I have a few in my family. It's one of the most difficult things to overcome, right? It's like believing that you have to perform at a certain level and to accept yourself anything below that is not easy. How did you overcome this? This one has been truly a lifelong process and I still um, struggle with it. But one of the things that's really helped me was learning design thinking. Mm. So I went to uh, earn my master's in learning design and technology at Stanford. And one of the beautiful things that came out of that uh, educational experience and learning experience was discovering design thinking. And why I think it's so powerful is it really is 
about bringing any idea into form because what happens when we're perfectionistic is that we may have a lot of ideas that we feel paralyzed, we procrastinate, mm. or our bar is so high that we never actually even try. Mm. And so um, design thinking is about breaking that because you have to learn how to prototype an idea quickly and iterate on it and it's purposefully messy. So it's a messy mm. creative process. So I've applied a lot of my uh, this learning of design thinking into my coaching practice because I've noticed, wow, it really gets women to start activating and putting their idea ideas into into action and being less precious about them. That's interesting. And is it tied to myth of logic? Yes. Let's go into the myth of logic. So the myth of logic is really when we prioritize or follow our mind and intellect more than mm. our body and intuition. And I'm not saying let's reject the intellect because I yeah. actually think we need critical thinking in the world. I'm actually saying that are we pulling from both forms of intelligences as women? And for some of us, especially if we grew up being told we were very smart, talented, and gifted, we have almost like overdeveloped this critical mind muscle mm. in that we can become skeptical and sometimes even cynical. And the greatest danger of the myth of logic, I find, is that we're divorced from our bodies and maybe the the, the intuitive intelligence that, that can come to us from paying attention to our feelings and paying attention to sensations in our body. Hmm. So, you know, I think the main strategy for approval for women with the myth of logic is like they really want to be credible hmm. and they, they really don't want to seem woo-woo or crazy or yeah. on the fringe. They really want to be credible, put together, seem smart. And that's that's great as long as you're not neglecting your intuition, your imagination, and that empathy. Mahu, you bring such an important point, and I wanted to talk about this later in the show, but let's let's talk about it now. What I see a common critique of third wave feminism is that aspects of it, especially corporate feminism, and I'm talking about this now because we've talked about logic, and you, as you mentioned, women want to appear smart, right? And in that space, um, third wave feminism basically praises women who in some ways emulate traits that have been deemed masculine, right? Mm -hmm. Or have been typically assigned to say men. This, this whole notion of girl boss who's portrayed to be like aggressive, hard hitting. What do you think is happening because of that? And do you think we are losing appreciation for intuition and our feminine side as a strength because of how much we are trying to emulate masculine side of ourselves if there is one? And why can't it be the other way around? Because women have so much to offer. Why can't our expectation be that men should emulate women instead? Yeah, I, I do talk about this briefly in the book under the myth of perfection when I talk about achievement and capitalism. Like, you're right, a lot of the feminism of the 2000s, you know, sort of the lean-in movement, it's like, got to excel at work. But yeah. then it's like, how are we defining success here? You know, how are we defining leadership? And it is being defined in a very masculine way, like assertiveness and being smart and mm. being maybe being cunning. And and, yeah. um, and so I, I totally agree. I think um, part of that is because of we are 100% in the patriarchy. And so we are defining leadership in a patriarchal way. Mm. And 
I think we have to broaden our understanding of leadership to include feminine qualities like intuition and and creativity as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for a lot of women and my clients where I really work with them on the myth of logic is decision making. Mm-hmm. Like when you're at a crossroads and you have to make tough decisions, it's so important to draw on like pros and cons and make your pros and cons list and be analytical about it. And there's another pool of intelligence that you have in your body where your body understands what a yes looks like and what a no Mm. looks like. And the more we can uh, use mindfulness to tune into sensations in the body of, oh, a yes, it feels like an expansion and no feels like a contraction. Mm. The more we we can pay attention to the cues and slow down and pay attention to those cues, the more we're going to be able to make better decisions in our work lives, but also in our relationships. And so, you know, with a lot of my, uh, the work I do with women and myself is often about going within, closing the eyes and using mindfulness to pay attention to the bodily cues. Now, if you're in an achiever hmm. and you're in a, a rapid work startup space and it's about performance and it's about uh, speed, oftentimes we will neglect and drop the body throughout the day. Hmm. So a lot of it is about reclaiming that. So how do you reclaim that? When do you feel the most intuitive? How do you harness your intuition? Can you give us an example? Sure. So for me, it's been a lot around meditation and building a sacred space for myself in within my home. I think, you know, and I get into that in the myth of sacrifice as well. These are all interlinked. But um, having a space for yourself uh, that is just for you to drop in uh, on a daily basis, if possible, yeah. is really powerful. So, uh, you know, if the word altar feels too spiritual or religious, you can call it something else, but I call it an altar. I create yeah. myself an altar, and it's a place that I can go and practice mindfulness, meditation, tune in. But it's also something that once I plug into that space, I think it's important to note this you can carry it with you throughout your day. It's almost Mm. like you just need to touch home base Mm. (laughs) for a moment. And then you can take that piece of that with you throughout your day so that if you're in a stressful situation or if you're in a moment where you have to make a decision, you can go back to that place of calm Mm. and draw on that. And again, you know, one very simple process is so using the imagination is really powerful, I think, because maybe if we were told that, you know, being creative, being artistic and imaginative was never going to lead to any job prospect. Yeah. Maybe we've squashed that part. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we think it's too woo-woo. But if you're able to visualize the two scenarios, let's say you are uh, faced with a decision, visualize the scenario of saying, what would it look like if you said yes to that decision? Mm-hmm. And really get detailed in your mind. Close your eyes. Visualize what you would be doing if you said yes and notice any sensations in the body and then let that sink in and then visualize what would, you, would it feel like if you said no <sighs> and use that imagination while paying attention to sensations in the body. That's a very simple process that you can do that will help you tap into your intuition and bypass some of the logical minds that can really grip us. So I want to go back to your myths and I want to talk about harmony and sacrifice and connect it with collectivist cultures. Again, my interest in collectivist cultures, because I grew up in Pakistan, a very collectivist society, community-based structures, legal systems are pretty much 
there to promote and facilitate the family unit, extended family unit. So once you talk about it, then I want to delve into that and see how it applies to collectivist societies in terms of how those societies will be impacted if we were to conquer myth of harmony and sacrifice. I love it. I love the the depth of um, the richness of this conversation and the um, <laughs> the curiosity you're bringing to it. I so appreciate it. Yeah, I would love to do that. So for the myth of harmony, it's, you know, this. it sounds like, you know, if I just go with the flow and avoid being difficult, hmm. there won't be any problems. Everyone will get along. And it's really this tendency to seek and keep harmony hmm. in a way that, you know, instead of sort of embracing the conflict and confrontation that is often needed for change. So I'm operating under the belief that the healthiest relationships have some degree of friction and the ability to withhold and be with that friction is what allows that relationship to flourish and mature. So, Hmm. you know, that is one core assumption that I'm having about relationships that I think is really important. Relationships aren't just about everybody getting along and it being pleasant all the time. Absolutely. The powers that we give up when we're under the good girl myth of harmony is our voice and our truth. Mm. And uh, this is really for a lot of women who maybe find it difficult to speak up or give feedback. And particularly they're afraid of disappointing other people, maybe not being liked. And this is something that I've observed in so many uh, women and including myself. You know, I give the example anecdote of uh, an ex-boyfriend being in a toxic relationship Mm. And um, him asking me to get a tattoo with his initials on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and at the time I was, you know, afraid to <laughs> cause drama and disappoint him because we'd always, we had been fighting a lot. I was like, okay, you know what? I'll just go ahead and do it. And in my head, I assumed that he would get my initials on right. his body. And he came back and he didn't. And mm. he did not. And I was devastated. I was like, wow. Especially because I was even in that relationship felt identified as a someone who uh, had, you know, was quote unquote a feminist. Like, how dare I get a, a tattoo with a man's initials on my body and him not do the same for me. And it was interesting at the time that we were getting the tattoo in the tattoo parlor, there would have been a time to really ask him if he was going to do it. It would have been the time to speak up to the tattoo artist and tell her that the tattoo she had drawn wasn't that nice. (laughs) There was like so many opportunities for me to speak up, but for whatever reason, I just went with it. And I I think, you know, some people can relate to that experience where you're just like in your mind, you're like, oh, I just, I'll just go with it. Like I won't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what now I have a tattoo on my body, you know, I obviously I can get it removed. I removed the initials, but I still have this tattoo on my body for the rest of my life. So I always I give that example as like, sometimes the stakes are high, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. they're low when we don't speak up, but sometimes they could be, they, they range, you know, sometimes they could be mid to high. And, you know, I think it's really important that we learn to use our voice and, Part of that, and we can talk about that, I think when we get into collectivist cultures, maybe we'll talk about backlash, but part of it is like, how can we withstand the backlash from from speaking up, whether that's a trade-off that we're, or whether we feel it's worth withstanding that backlash. Hmm. Now, when I talk about collectivist cultures, in my mind, there are two aspects to it. One is obviously the kind of relationship that you're describing, relationship with a companion, a spouse. And then the second kind of relationship that I'm thinking about is relationship with your parents and your siblings. I draw a lot of strength from my relationship with my 
parents and my siblings. I feel like I can be myself in front of them. When it comes to relationship between spouse or companion, there there is a hierarchy, especially in our cultures where it's like, oh, you know, if your spouse or companion or husband says something, just ignore it, um, go with the flow. And when women don't do that, there is absolutely backlash. But Mahu, the way I see it, it's also because in most of these societies, women are financially dependent on men, right? So I feel like that's such an important component of why it happens, because women don't have the power dynamic is the way it is, and it is skewed because men are the sole breadwinners. Now, Mm -hmm. some may say, you know, men take care of women. Yes, they do. But it also changes the way power dynamic works between the two, right? Mm -hmm. And how do you think women who are in that situation where they are financially dependent on somebody, they know if they were to speak up, there is going to be backlash and they are not independent. So they can't just get up and walk out. What kind of dynamic do you see happening in those situations and under those circumstances? Such a great question. The first thing that comes to mind when you were speaking was the importance of women banding together. Because mm-hmm. I think how, you know, and I, and I touch on it so briefly in How Do We Withstand Backlash with the Myth of Harmony. I think when it is just one woman and she's isolated, because think about how the patriarchy works is really about isolating its victims, Mm -hmm. disconnect you from your family, other people really victimize you so that you can't, you're feeling trapped and you really have no resources and um, places to go. And so I think for, for women like that, who are in that situation, again, I want to caveat that I'm not a social worker or Mm -hmm. social justice Mm -hmm. expert or anything like that. So I'm just speaking from what I have observed and, and I'd love to hear what you think, is that when we band together, when we have the power of numbers, Mm. then we can really start to make change. And of course, you know, there's a lot of criticism about Time's Up and Me Too and the Women's March. Totally get it. Mm. In a lot of ways, it wasn't, especially the Women's March, not intersectional enough. Mm. But what it did do and show is the power of numbers. Mm. And I think with social media now and with how connected we can be if we women can band together and if a woman like that in that situation can find another woman in a similar situation or reach out to her sisters, Hmm. it's how we can really begin to uh, create a buffer Hmm. and start to withstand some of the, the, the consequences and dangers of real ones of abuse and patriarchy. Mahu, let's move on to the myth of sacrifice. Now, to some, it may sound as inherently bad or wrong, but I feel like as humans, we live on this spectrum, vast spectrum of humanity, and sometimes we have to make these sacrifices. But at the same time, are we willing to make those sacrifices? Are we choosing to make those sacrifices or are we forced to make them. So let's talk about that. So in the good girl myth of sacrifice, I like to say this is the good girl myth with the thickest, deepest roots because it's been around for thousands of years and it's passed down multi-generationally, particularly mm. through matrilineal lines from mothers to daughters, but also in, in other familial ways. But this is the idea that women should really 
prioritize the needs of others before their own at the expense of their own self-care and well-being. Mm-hmm. That's where it becomes problematic. And the way that this looks is like this, the main strategy for approval is being selfless, helpful, and saving the day. But what I see this gets really dangerous and what's at stake is your time and energy, which can add up to your contribution and destiny. Hmm. And what I'd like to say about all the good girl myths, including the myth of sacrifice, which is really important, and maybe I should have said this up front, is that none of these myths are inherently bad. So there is a time for sacrifice. And if you are choosing sacrifice or if you are deciding, I want to do this sacrifice in my relational role or duty as mother, daughter, sister-in-law, that is beautiful. More power to you. The question is, are you choosing it Hmm. on a conscious level or are you defaulting it into it because you want to avoid backlash, please perform because it's what you've always known. It's because what you've inherited from the systems you grew up in. So I think this question of choice versus default, Hmm. right? This is very big for all the good girl myths. And that's a very important question. That's a very important point that you bring up because all these myths, when we look at them, they may not be inherently dangerous or inherently bad, but are we making those choices on our own? I think it's a choice between should we do it or do we want to do it? Yes, exactly. Okay, here I want to do something. I want to connect American pop culture to your myths and see how it perpetuates some of these myths and creates gender hierarchy. Because to be honest, in my mind, American pop culture can sometimes mess up with our psyche and create these narratives which are harmful to creating a more just and equitable society for everyone. I love this question. I see it a lot in music and film, Hmm. but I'll give an example of a movie that really affected my psyche as a teenager. It was called A Walk to Remember with Mandy Moore. I don't know if you know this movie, but basically the premise of the movie, for those who don't know, is I'm just going to paint broad strokes. She's she's the daughter of a preacher, a very religious girl. And uh, very shy. She wears a cardigan. What, what you might think of a sort of a stereotypical good girl. Hmm. And he, uh, the boy, is a, a really bad boy. He's like getting in a lot of trouble. He's kind of a lost cause. So they fall in love. And the whole premise of the the movie is about how sort of she she saves him. Hmm. And <laughs> she, you know, she absolves him of his sins, <laughs> you know. And basically um, he becomes, converts into being good and religious because out of love he gets transformed. And it's a really beautiful story. And you'll literally sob your eyes out because in the end she like, so, spoiler alert, she dies of cancer. She's like oh. leukemia and she's like oh. dying in two weeks. So you're like, you're crying and you're feeling all these emotions and But when I was watching this as a 15-year-old, I identified with her and I thought to myself, that's what I need. I need a boy like that. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's hilarious that I can save, you know, that I can convert a bad boy that I can make good and wholesome again. And so that's exactly who I got. You know, I dated um, a boy in high school who at age 16 took my virginity away, Mm. took my virginity's even awful language. I had sex with him for the first time. And and he cheated on me. He was a bad boy. So I got burned. And then my boyfriend in college was the one with the tattoo I told you about. Oh, my God. He also cheated on me, oh. got burned. So I feel like I went through some, you know, I went Terrible through religion. some rough yeah. patches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But do you think, Mao, it has to do with how women are conditioned? Like, you know, you have to help others. It is so unfortunate, but I see it all the time. And I see it in our culture a lot. Like, you know, elders or parents, especially mothers will say things like, oh, you know, uh, you can change people through good behavior, and mm-hmm. which is such a BS because it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. No, doesn't you get happen. burned. You get you burned. Get burned. Exactly. And then you, you come out with battle scars and baggage into your next relationship. You have to heal. Thank God for my husband who I've been with now for 10 years. And he's like, he's helped me heal and unlearn a lot of the, it's just like the, the scars from that stuff that I picked up. But but yes, it's conditioned through messages from our family, but yeah. also like we were talking about movies yeah. and music. Like how many songs have the words, I couldn't include them in my book because mm. of copyright issues, mm. but so many lyrics about like, she was a good girl, you know, yeah. <laughs> and good girl this, good girl that, you know, and you know, she's a lady in the street, but a freak in the bed, you know, like yeah. just so many lyrics about, you know, what, what it means to be a proper lady and you know, when I think about film and music is you're young, you're impressionable, and they're they're repetitive in nature. Like you might watch the same film over and over again. You might listen to the same song over and over again. So there's like a brainwashing aspect to them. Hmm. Do you think it's changing though now because we see a lot of bad girl songs now and there is a <laughs> lot of emphasis on that? So are we just shifting the paradigm completely and moving the other extreme? I don't know. You know, it's interesting because like if you look at a lot of the bad girl stuff too, mm. is like, is that again just like another puppet of the mm. patriarchy, right? That's because interesting. Yeah. I think anything that is going back to choice versus like default and being molded into something. Mm. I think, you know, if a woman is choosing to be quote unquote bad in a certain context, um, but knows that she can be good in a different context mm. and somewhere in between in a third context, like we are multidimensional. Right. I think when we can allow for that multidimensionality, it's good. But then when we are flattened into archetypes, yeah. you know, that are shoved down our throats and repeated, like the bad girl, the good girl, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, that's when it gets dangerous. And I think, you know, I think even some of that stuff is still sort of uh, archaic, that's um, true. That's true. That make, That's such a good point. Have you seen any um, TV shows that you think may be getting it right? Oh, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> you assume I watch TV shows. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you assume I have time to watch TV shows. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've seen. Or movies recent- or anything. Anything that um, even like song that you uh, listened to and you were like, you know what, this is not bad. Well, I'll give one one example of what I'm seeing now with Gen Z. And like, if mm. you just go on TikTok right now, like mm. a lot of the Gen Z girls are just, they don't give, they give zero. Yeah, Can they, I swear on this? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they give zero fucks. Like they're just like, I'm a goofball. I'm like hairy. I'm sweaty. I'm like putting the camera in my face, like, (laughs) I'm oily, like, I don't care, like, just like, they're just like, they're just hilarious and fully creatively expressed and really, um, I'm excited about that, the new generation. I'm really excited when I see that. I just, I even see these really beautiful model-esque girls just doing the most hilarious, disgusting stuff. And it's really interesting. It's almost like they're subverting. Like, I know I'm quote unquote patriarch, like to patriarchal beauty standards, I'm considered beautiful. And 
I don't give a fuck right now. I'm going to like spit cereal out of my mouth and, you know, roll around in my pajamas on the ground and make weird, heavy breathing sounds. And just, it's hilarious. You know, I think they're embracing personality and being funny and that's exciting. Why do you think that's happening, Maho, though? Why is it happening with Gen Z? Oh, that's such a good question. I think Gen Z, I don't know. I need to speak to more Gen Zers, but I do. <laughs> I did speak to a teenage girl, a friend of mine's daughter recently, and and I think she, she was really into climate change stuff and activism. And I think she was also feeling like the world I've inherited is so fucked and crazy right yeah. now yeah. that like I don't have anything to lose. So there's this feeling of like, I don't have anything to lose. Like, this is all crazy anyway. Like, I'm growing up in a pandemic. Like, That's thanks true. very much. That's true. I, my daughter is part of Gen Z. And what I've seen, both my daughters, what I've seen is that they are so much more into activism at a very young age. And that really surprises me. Like, my daughter will post stuff on Instagram that even I am not aware of. And I'll be like, okay, how does she know? Or how is she aware of what's happening? And I think there is a lot of activism. There is a lot of what you said. I don't give a fuck whatever is happening. You know, this is who I am. I'm embracing myself with all different, you know, nuances and dimensions. I am so curious to know why they are doing this. Like, what did they get right? And it's interesting to see how, and I hope it continues to happen. I hope when they are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, this this continues. It doesn't stop. Yes. Well, I think it's so different. Like, I grew up with Britney Spears, you know, Mm -hmm. in the 90s. And like, the 90s were like, really crazy. Sometimes I look back at movies in the 90s, like romantic comedies, and and I'm just like, I can't believe the stuff we watched. Yeah. Like, it's so racist. It's sexist. Yeah, it's, exactly. And like, exactly. nobody questioned it. And I think I think there's more of a fluidity, too. Like, yeah. I'm seeing a lot of Gen Zers have more gender fluidity. They're, That's true. Um, they're just, they're more educated about intersectionality and and I wonder if it's because they're also part of, you know, we just had one of the, we are in the middle of like a huge wave hmm. uh, with Black Lives Matter. And they're like in the thick of that, right? In fact, uh, talking about gender non-conforming, non-binary, have you ever spoken to a reader who is gender non-conforming, even maybe trans women? Have you had a reader or a client? No, because I make it really clear that the book is for people who identify as Hmm. women, whether or not they were assigned that gender at birth. So there has to be some social identification with being a woman for the book to be relevant. Hmm. So the answer is no. Even like people who are non-binary, they may not identify as women, but not men either. I mean, I I would love to connect. If there's anyone listening who's non-binary and wants to reach out to me and read the book and 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 see if they identify with the good girl archetype or the myths. Hmm. I would be so open to that and curious to opening up a dialogue because also I think what's really important to note and I, what I love about this conversation too is like I'm very much uh, growing in my process hmm. and waking up to a lot of anti-racism work and waking up to a lot of heteronormativity and there's so much more that I could do and I know that, you know, and, and I think by willingness – to learn and also say like I didn't get it all right on the first you know or this is my this is my perspective and lens I think is is important is are there any new projects in the pipelines is there a 2.0 version coming out anytime soon is there something else that you're working on 
Such a good question. Right now I'm like, this is my, I've been working on this baby for three years. Oh, so wow. I'm like really ready to have conversations around the good girl myths and really open up conversations like this one mm-hmm. um, that are rich and deep. So that's what what's on my mind at the moment. Um, I continue to write. I love to write creatively and I think the next frontier for me is to break my own good girl myth of logic and write <laughs> <laughs> and write something that has more to do with either f- fiction or memoir. And Maho, where can people find this book? Yes, they can find it at goodgirlmyth.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Maho Molfino, Maho spelled M-A-J-O. In the end, I normally ask my guests this question, how do they define America? But I want you to define America in the context of its existing patriarchy. And what is your hope for future? Oh my God, what a question, Sadia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, how do I define America? Oh, there are two Americas in America. (laughs) 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 I think we all know what two, two Americas are, the two Americas are. But, you know, I think this, I think we're waking up to this country being built on a lot of trauma and injustice hmm. at from the beginning um and i think not we're not waking up to excuse me a portion of us are waking up to that many of us hmm. have already known that for a long time um and and i think where america is right now is that we have american ideals hmm. pursuit of happiness freedom equality and then we have american shadow you know, Hmm. genocide, slavery, trauma. And so how are we going to deal with, I think in order to reach the ideals, we have to deal with the shadow. That's so beautiful. Yeah. This was wonderful, Maho. I had so much fun and I really look forward to, you know, having you back sometime in future where maybe we can talk more about intersectionality and how this book or another book that you write in future can apply to women of color. I would love that. I am so open to that. And I'd be also curious if any women of color or black women now identify hmm. with the good girl myths and good girl archetype. Like, you know, I've def- I've had uh, certain clients be of mixed race and I've had uh, certain clients that have been black. So I'd be curious and open to learning if more do or don't and why. Yeah. And because I think there's something interesting to be revealed there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was great. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Sadia. I love this conversation. So how did you guys like our conversation with Maho? I really enjoyed it. I feel like there was so much depth to the conversation and we were approaching it from two very important angles internalized patriarchy and external patriarchy that exists in almost every culture if you liked our conversation please share it it helps us grow you can follow us on twitter for updates about immigrantly our twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod our instagram is at immigrantly pod and can't wait to bring another incredible story next time. Stay safe and stay well. Oh.